Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are officially in the holiday season. We just had Thanksgiving. December is here. There are 23 and a half shopping days left until Christmas. And this time of year, the phrase home for the holidays gets batted around a lot. Maybe some of you were able to go home, wherever home is for Thanksgiving. Maybe for others, this is home and you had people come visit you. Maybe you're not really sure where home is. One of my friends whose parents were both army officers said they always had a plaque in their house that said, home is where the army sends us. I know a lot of you can relate to that. We can have a deep connection to a particular place, whether it's the geography of a certain part of the country or a house that relatives have lived in for decades. But for most of us, I would guess home has less to do with the place than it does with the people who are there. So on Christmas morning, I'm going to fly to Nashville to spend a few days with my parents and my brother and my sister-in-law at my parents' house. Now, mom and dad have only lived in Nashville for about five years, and I don't think I have ever spent more than a week at a time there. But just the other day, I was talking to a friend, and I told her I was going home for Christmas. Nashville is not home in any conventional sense of the word for me, but it's home because it's where my family will be. Now, for a lot of people, their nuclear families do not provide that welcome sense of home. And so they find home with other people, with a chosen family, and that is every bit as real. Because what we're longing for when we're longing for home is a place where we are known and loved, a place where we know and love others, a place where we belong, a place of safety and comfort, of laughter and tears, of peace and love. That longing for home that we often feel is nothing new. It's been, a long, it's been around as long as people have been around. And it's not the only longing that we all feel. We also feel a longing for peace, a longing for healing, a longing for a savior. These longings we can find all the way through scripture, and especially we find them in the book of Isaiah. Some of the most familiar and beloved passages of Isaiah speak about these longings and about God's response to them. And so through this season of Advent, we're going to be looking at these passages from Isaiah. They are beautiful words and powerful words about hope, about God's deliverance for God's people. And these words of hope are made all the more powerful because they are spoken in the midst of not hope. These words in Isaiah are responses to sadness, to despair, to need. These words of hope are a response 
to longing. And Advent is a season of longing. It is not just a countdown to Christmas of how many days left until we finally get to open our presents. Anglican priest and author Tish Harrison Warren has a piece in the New York Times this weekend, and she wrote this. She said, Advent is a season when we lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right, and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We ache for things to be made right And we look forward to the day when God will finally bring his kingdom to fulfillment here on earth. So in this season of Advent, we look to the past, we look to the present, and we look to the future. We look to the past and we remember Israel's longing for a Messiah, for the Christ, for God's anointed one who would come and bring an everlasting kingdom of justice and peace. We look to the present and we seek out signs of Christ's reign and rule even now. And we look to the future, to Christ's final coming, his final advent, when his kingdom will come to its fulfillment. Advent remembers past longings, It recognizes present longings, and it looks to a future when God will fulfill all longings as he makes all things new. So when we read Isaiah's prophecies in this season of Advent, we need to hear them with ears attuned to all of these dimensions, past, present, and future. We need to listen for what God was saying to the people in Isaiah's time. We need to listen to how those words might speak to us today. And we need to listen for what those words tell us about Jesus' final advent, his final coming. And in all of it, we listen for God's word of hope that's spoken to the deep longings in our hearts. But in order to understand any of that, we have to understand something about the world in which Isaiah was prophesying. And that world was one of war, of threats of war, and of instability. So Isaiah began prophesying somewhere around 740 BC. And at that time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah's capital was Jerusalem. Now, even when they were combined, these two kingdoms were tiny in comparison to the huge empires that surrounded them. And as divided kingdoms, it was even worse. The empires that surrounded Israel were always looking to either conquer Israel or to conquer the empire that had just conquered Israel. They wanted to gain whatever territory they could. So all of that is to say that the age of Isaiah was not a golden age for Israel. They had enemies breathing down their necks, and they were living with this imminent threat of war and occupation and exile. And it's into that situation that Isaiah proclaims, 
it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations will flow to it. Isaiah is saying that Jerusalem, the capital of this small and insignificant nation, is going to be lifted up, is going to be elevated in a way that nations, people from all nations, will just flock to it. Why will they do this? Because they want God to teach them his ways, and they want to walk in God's paths. This Jerusalem will become a home for all the nations. It will be a place of righteousness and peace. In this Jerusalem, God will settle disputes between nations. Justice will reign and there will be no need for war. As Isaiah says, the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. This is an incredible vision that Isaiah casts for his people. It is a vision of home, of the real home that their hearts have always longed for. What Isaiah is saying is that the house of the Lord is their heart's home. And the house of the Lord is our heart's home, too. It's a home that was first begun to be, to be built with the birth of Christ, when the kingdom of God broke into our world. And it is the home that will come to completion with Christ's final coming, when he returns in glory to bring the fulfillment of that kingdom. God is the one who created this longing for home in us. And God is the one who will fulfill that longing. God is the one who creates and will welcome us into the homes our hearts long for. And that is good news. Because if you haven't noticed, we humans are not particularly good at creating realms of righteousness, justice, and peace. Wars rage, people suffer, poverty persists. We deceive ourselves, we hurt each other, we ravage the earth. If God left it up to us to create the home that our hearts long for, we would be longing forever. But that is not what happens. That is not what God does. Instead, God creates his house. God creates our heart's home. Now, by his grace, he invites us to join him in that creation. But the work and the responsibility are his, which means we can trust that God will create the home our hearts long for. And it won't be a home just for us. It will be a home for all people. All the nations, Isaiah says, many peoples. Now, it's true that most of us 
tend to feel most comfortable with people who are like us. But in God's home, we will be living with people who, by a lot of counts, are very different from us. They'll be from different parts of the world. They'll speak different languages. They'll have different skin colors. Some will have been rich. Most will have been poor. Some will have been successful. Most will not have amounted to much by human standards. These will be our siblings, our brothers and sisters in the house of the Lord. This will be our family in the home our hearts long for. And the house rules in God's home will be quite a bit different from the way the world works now. In Isaiah's day, people or Israel knew peace only if it cut deals with the larger kingdoms and empires that surrounded it. Those kingdoms would promise not to invade Israel if Israel would pay them off with money or with goods and with not aligning with their, with their enemies. In Jesus' day, the Roman Empire was famous for having created the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, which basically meant that there was peace in the Roman Empire because Rome had beaten everybody else into submission. And in our day, it wasn't too many years ago when U.S. foreign and military policy were built on the idea of mutually assured destruction. The idea that we could create peace with our Soviet enemies by both, both of us possessing enough nuclear weapons that we could and would destroy each other if one of us were to attack. That's what peace looks like when humans try to create it. But the peace that exists in the house of the Lord is totally different. The peace of God's house isn't the Pax Romana or mutually assured destruction. It is shalom. Shalom is God's kind of peace. It's a peace that is built on righteousness and mercy. A peace where all can flourish. A peace that as Martin Luther King Jr. said, is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. The ways of God, the paths of the Lord, they are ways and paths of shalom. And they are so different from the way the world as we know it works. And that's why in Isaiah's vision, people flock from all over the world to the house of the Lord because they want God to teach them his ways. They want to walk in his paths because the home our hearts long for is a house of shalom. God is already creating this home. He's already shaping and molding the world the way that he intends for it to be. And I think part of God's invitation to us, and especially in the season of Advent, is to look for it. To look for the places in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and around the world where shalom is breaking out. And maybe especially in places where, by human standards, 
That kind of peace makes no sense at all. I think God is inviting us to look for the places where we see all kinds of people from all kinds of background coming together and truly feeling at home. So I think about an organization called Seeds of Peace. Seeds of Peace started back in the mid-1990s by bringing Israeli and Palestinian teenagers together at a camp in Maine. And away from the violence and the division of their homes, these young people could build relationships across enemy lines. And they learned leadership skills so that they could go back home and be seeds of peace and reconciliation where they lived. Today, Seeds of Peace works with young people from all across the Middle East, from Afghanistan and India and Pakistan, from Europe and from here in the US. There are over 7,300 Seeds of Peace alumni all over the world who live and work in, in communities of entrenched conflict. And there they witness to the real and to the transformative power of peace. And that, I would say, is a taste of the shalom of the house of the Lord. Or I think about the story that was in the news this week. Maybe some of you saw it. Four years ago in Arizona, a woman named Wanda Dench texted her grandson to invite him over for Thanksgiving dinner. Except she got the number wrong, and the text went not to her grandson, but to a 16-year-old named Jamal Hinton. Jamal, who is black, asked Wanda, who is white, to send him a picture of herself to verify that it was his grandma, which she did. And his good-natured response was, you're not my grandma. Can I still get a plate, though? And Wanda texted back, of course you can. That's what grandmas do. They feed everyone. And Jamal took Wanda up on her offer. He joined her family, including her actual grandson, joined them for Thanksgiving dinner, and they have done it every year since then. They, and they brought their families into the mix. So this year, actually, Jamal's aunt was the one who hosted him and the Dench family at her home. And Wanda and Jamal actually get together regularly throughout the year just because they enjoy each other's company. It is a glimpse of the house of the Lord where everyone feels at home. God is already building his house of shalom, this home that our hearts long for. And God invites us to be on the lookout for it And then God invites us to join him in that work, to contribute to the shalom, to extend the welcome, to invite others to experience that taste of home that their hearts long for. There are many ways that we can do that. Often, I think our first step toward that work is to acknowledge what Tish Harrison Warren says in her piece today, that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience 
or selfishness. All of us have been wounded. All of us experience fear. And because of that, I think all of us can hear this vision of a house of peace that Isaiah paints where weapons are no longer needed. And we can find ourselves thinking, yeah, no way. Swords made into a gardening tool, like that's good for you idealistic prophet types. But we live in the real world. We will keep our swords and our spears, thank you very much. Because somebody's got to stand guard at the house of the Lord. And so what we must do to join God in building his house of shalom is to allow God to disarm our hearts. That's what an organization called Raw Tools is trying to do. Raw Tools invites people to donate their guns They safely and legally disable the guns, and then they literally turn them into gardening tools. Spades and shovels, hoes and pitchforks. Last year, Raw Tools took 140 guns that were collected by police in a buyback program in New Haven, Connecticut. They trained inmates in a local prison to transform those guns into gardening tools. And then those tools are being distributed to high schools and to community gardens around the state of Connecticut, where students and adults will use them to grow food that will be donated to local food banks. And Raw Tools also runs workshops and trainings on violence prevention and conflict resolution so that people's hearts can be disarmed. That is their motto, disarming hearts and forging peace. Now, whether or not we own firearms, all of us have armed our hearts in some way, with anger, with fear, with a desire for control. And God's invitation to us is to let him disarm our hearts so that we can find our peace in him. And as we experience that transformation and that healing, then we can invite others into it as well. We are all longing for home. We are longing for the place where we can rest, knowing that we are accepted and welcomed and loved. And each week, we get a little taste of the home we long for here at the Lord's table. This is a foretaste of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, of the day when people from all nations will gather together in the house of the Lord, in the home where God's shalom reigns and where we will live in true communion with all the peoples of the world. So here at this table, we gather to experience together the house that the Lord is building and to share our lives with each other. This is a place where we can stop learning war, where we can let our hearts be disarmed, and where we can be fed so that we join the Lord in the work 
of extending his welcome to everyone who is longing for home. And as we do so, may we hear Isaiah's words echo across the generations. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen.